0: So if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, and uh, maybe much to your relief, we're going to be in just one verse today. Uh, I don't know if that's relief or or what, but uh, we may manage to stretch this thing out anyhow. John chapter 1. And the title of my sermon, you've seen Emily made a slide for us on the back that says, The Word Became Flesh. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we are tremendously thankful and grateful in our hearts as we uh, sit and, and enjoy the gifts that you have given to your people in this church to bless us with their musical talents and abilities and uh, Lord, that you fuel them and you fill them with your spirit to lead us to your throne, to touch some places in our hearts this morning uh, that nothing else can touch but music in your word. And Father, we are thankful that we get to enjoy the blessing of it today. I pray this morning as we open your word together that you would, um, that you would help our minds and our hearts to, to move away all of the distractions that we would be able to focus on this simple message that John chapter 1 And verse 14 gives us about the word becoming flesh. And my prayer all week long and this morning as I stand in front of your people, Lord, is that they and I would lay hold of the majestic miracle of what it is for God to become one of us. Lord, you didn't have to do it. You could have uh, chosen a thousand other ways. But the simple story of God becoming a baby Lord, I pray we would never lose our sense of awe, our sense of reverence, that we would never stop marveling at the majesty of the Most High God becoming a lowly baby to two poor peasant parents in a tumble-down stable. God, I pray that you would give us this morning a sense of your presence that we would worship with joy and gladness because of what you have done for us. Lord, I pray we would truly come to your word and see what you have done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together, and everyone said, amen. amen. Well, this past week, um, I, I pulled a book off of my shelf that I, have, um, that I don't know that I've ever actually read before, but it, it looked like a pretty good title for what we're going to talk about this morning. It's called God Came Near, and it's by Max Licato. Do we have anyone who likes to read Max Licato in here? Okay, then you're going to love this. I pulled this book off my shelf and I thought this will be a good primer for me uh, just to kind of kickstart my heart and my mind to think about what it is for the Word to become flesh, what that means, and why we have reason to rejoice and to celebrate today. And if you have ever read God Came Near, you will know uh, that it is basically Lucado's biblically imaginative version, like what his mind's eye would have seen. Uh, at the birth of Christ. And he walks through different segments of John 1.14 and tells some amazing stories and draws some beautifully graphic pictures that are powerful and poignant as he points toward the birth of the Christ child. In the introduction, he tells the story of a man named Bob Edens. And Bob is different probably than most of us in this room because Bob was born blind, or rather he had been blind for 51 years. I want you to listen to Bob's story. For 51 years, Bob Edens was blind. He couldn't see a thing. His world was a black hall of sounds and smells, and for five decades of darkness, he felt his way through life. And then one day, he could see. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation, and for the very first time in his life, Bob Edens had sight. He found it overwhelming. And when I read this, I sat, uh, I sat this week at a restaurant reading this, and, and two or three times what I'm about to read to you. I had to turn and look out the window because I, my eyes just filled with tears, and I thought, they're going to wonder why I'm crying in my gravy biscuit here this morning. <laughs> but he found it overwhelming. Listen to what Eden said. He said, I never dreamed that yellow is so yellow. He said, I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow. He said, but red, red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. He said, I can see the shape of the moon and I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane fly across the sky and leave a vapor trail behind it as it goes. And he said, of course, sunrises and sunsets He said, at night I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. He said, you could never know how wonderful all of it is. Lakedo says of Bob Edens, he's right. Because those of us who have lived a lifetime with our sight could never imagine the gift that it is to be given sight for the very first time and to see everything that you see in this place this morning. But Bob Edens is not the only one who has spent a lifetime near something. Without truly seeing it. Locato says it's amazing. We can live near to something for a lifetime. And still be blind to that thing. Just because you've witnessed a thousand rainbows in your life. Does not mean you've seen the grandeur of one. You can live near a garden and fail to see the splendor of a flower. Listen to this. A man can spend a lifetime with a woman. And never pause to look into her soul. And a person can be all that goodness And morality calls him to be and still never see the author of life. I'm afraid that's how it is with us and Christmas. I'm afraid we gather around poinsettias and presents and family get-togethers and food and Christmas trees. And we sing some of the same songs year in, year out. And we celebrate decades of Christmases on this earth. And we never really stop. As David Platt says, To marvel at the majesty of the one who left his throne in glory to come to you and to come to me. Marveling at the majesty of the miraculous birth of the Messiah is at the heart of John 1.14. That's what it is for the word to become flesh, that God would enter into our shattered and broken world. Not as something different from us, but as one of us so that he could identify with us and join us in our suffering and live the life we could not live, the righteous, perfect life, and then die the death that we should have died. This is the news of Christmas. This is the most unimaginably good news, gospel news there is. And this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to marvel at the majesty of John 1.14, that the Word would become flesh. And here has been my prayer for you all week long, and my prayer for myself as I've studied, that you and I this morning would gain a sense of the presence of God among us, that we would truly lay hold, I mean like, like bear hug, the majestic miracle of what it means for God to become a man. We tell the story and we read it to our children and then we move along and the 26th comes and the 1st comes and February whatever comes and the Bible reading plan's gone out the window by that point. Don't amen that. But do we really stop at Christmas time to let our minds and our hearts roll around like a pig in the mud? This message of God becoming a man. It really will change your world and your life. And it will lead you to a place of worshiping where you just stop and you pause and there are no words. And even the songs that we love to sing seem almost just uh, unworthy to even be lifted up because we cannot wrap our minds around God came to us. Would that we would always marvel at the goodness of God. See, the goodness and the greatness of God are different. The greatness of God speaks of His transcendence. He is almighty. He is powerful. But the goodness speaks of His love and His favor and His blessing to us. Oh, yes, He's great. But aren't you glad that He's good? Amen. John 1.14. We'll tackle this first part first. And the Word became flesh. First question. If you've never read this before, pretend this is your first time coming to this. Press pause in your mind and say, what is he talking about by the word? Well, if you were a Jew, it means something else to the Greeks. We talked about that last year. If you were a Jew, the Old Testament, the word gives the idea of divine speech. God is speaking. And when God speaks, miraculous things happen. Think about the Old Testament. God related to his people personally by doing what? Speaking. To them. He spoke to Abraham, or Abram rather, and gave him the covenant. He called out to Moses when Moses was running from himself and running from his past. And this morning, some of you come to this place, and I've prayed for you because you are running from yourself. And you're running from your past. And you're trying to run away from your guilt. And maybe you're trying to run away from God and you've somehow run into this place. Glory to God. He called out to Moses a fugitive and sent him right back to where he was running from. Called to him from a bush. I mean, what if this point poinsettia lit up on fire right now? We're getting out of here. I'm gone. Turn out the lights. I'm going home. And this bush sets on fire. And that happened all the time. It didn't burn down. It just kept staying on fire. Moses thought, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. I thought, the obvious. I mean, really? And God sets him on a mission. He called out to Samuel in the night. Do you remember Samuel's lay in there? And he says, Samuel. Samuel gets up and goes in there. Samuel gets up and goes in there. Samuel gets up and goes in there a couple of times. And finally, he's instructed to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But here in verse 14, God ratchets things up 10 notches because he moves from speaking to his people to actually being with his people. And this is the heartbeat of the Christmas story. See, my speech right now, look at my speech. Am I distant from you right now? Yes. I'm separated from you by at least 15 feet. Some of you much more. Speech by itself implies distance. My words have to travel a distance in order to get to you. And then you have to process them. And for some of us, it's a little slower than others, right? We have to process that. And it's got to go down in here and we digest it. Speech implies distance. But when Jesus was born, God passionately pursued his people by jumping down into the fray himself. That news has sidelined me all week long. I'm so glad to be honest with you that I didn't have to think about a Sunday night message because I stayed in this one verse all week and I just wrestled with it and I rolled around with it and I thought God entered in to the muck and the mire of my life. And if I shared with you my story like you could share with me yours, I am so glad that he didn't write it in a message across the sky He didn't put it in my mailbox one day and I was supposed to get it and I missed it. He didn't text me and my phone battery died, but he came to me. He came to us. He came to all of us to show us what God is like. Max Lucado calls it majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager and in the presence of a carpenter. He says a more lowly place of birth couldn't exist. But even in John's choice of words for Jesus' birth, it tells us something of his lowly birth because it says the word became what? Flesh. The word became flesh. There are two other words in the Greek that he could have chosen. He could have said the word became man, anthropos, or he could have said the word inhabited a body, soma, somatic. You've heard that word before but intentionally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John did not say man or soma. He said sarks, sarks, that the word became flesh. You know what sarks is in the Greek? It is the strongest word possible to describe the separation, the distinction between God and man. And Carrie and I were talking about this this week, and I said, you know, I said, it's almost as if John was saying to us, he came as the lowest possible one of us so that he could save the lowest possible one of us. Amen? Amen. He didn't come as something better than us because then he couldn't have saved the lowest of us. But like Paul says, we should all count ourselves as the lowest of the low because of the sin that dwells in our hearts. See, he became flesh. In other words, Jesus, listen to this, wrapped himself in the frailness of our humanity, to meet us where we are, bless God. This ought to pull back the curtain for us on how deeply God loves us and how passionately Christ has pursued every one of you in this room this morning. Listen to David Platt's statement. I love this. I read this five or six times. I just this one section. Christianity does not begin with our pursuit of Christ, but with Christ's pursuit. Of us. Think about that. We didn't go to him. He came to us. What does 1 John 4.19 say? We love. Why? Because he first loved us. Have you ever looked at your life at certain points when you were at your most unlovable? And you thought, how could anybody who knows me possibly love me? Well, I got news for you. Nobody knows you like Jesus, and nobody loves you like Jesus. Jesus is intimately acquainted with all of the worst parts of you, and he loves them just the same. But listen, he's not going to leave you that way. Praise the Lord. He doesn't leave us that way. When he enters into our life, when he calls us out of the spiritually dead place where Lazarus was and we spiritually were at, he doesn't leave us that way. Did he leave Lazarus in his grave clothes? No. No. He said, unbind him. Why did he say unbind him? Well, probably because it was a lot of grave clothes. But also because he wanted these other people to see what had happened. And you know what happens in a person's life? When Christ comes in, they watch a person. If, if, if this is you this morning, they watch you come to life spiritually. And they look at you and they think, my goodness, what has gone on in that person's life? And Jesus looks at the people around you as he unbinds you from your grave clothes. And they think, my goodness, look at the miracle of the resurrection of a person's life. You see, this, this, this is the fundamental difference in Christianity and every other religion or anti-religion out there. You know what religion says? Follow these rules and you will get to God. Or nowadays, it's make up your own rules... And find your own way to God. But in Christianity, you know what Jesus did? Jesus made his way to us to make a way for us so that we could have a relationship with the Father. Because you and I can't be good enough on our own. You're like, man, preacher, why do you keep telling me I can't be good enough on my own? I'm not telling you that. That's the thing. Read this book. Romans chapter 3 tells us that like sheep, we've all gone astray. That's quoting from Isaiah. So the Old and the New Testament tell you and tell me that we can't hack it on our own. And you know what people try to do every day of their life? They try to make the grade on their own. And you know what Christianity says? You don't have to make the grade. Jesus made the grade for you. Jesus passed the test of God's standards. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so he knows all the answers to the test because he was with God in eternity face to face is what John 1, 1 says. He passed the test. He wrote your name on the top when you receive him as Savior. He takes your wrinkled up dirty old test where you don't know any of the answers and you can't pass God's law. He takes it and he takes it to himself. And he says, here, you can have my A+. Plus. Give me your F. Let's trade places. How many times did the Psalms tell us, what other God is there like that than you? There is none. There is none. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, listen to this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know his grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became Poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know what 2 Corinthians 8 9 is telling us? That Jesus lovingly, willingly, compassionately traded places with you. And he said, Here, give me your rags, and here you can have all of my riches. And we'll trade places, and that's how you'll be acceptable to the Father. But see, the word had to become flesh in order for that to happen. God had to become one of us to live a life that we couldn't live. So he could trade places with us. What other God can do that or would do that even if they could for his people? But it goes on It says that he dwelt among us. This word dwell is a rare word in the New Testament. The only place you find it is in the book of Revelation. Isn't that interesting? John writes the Gospel of John. John writes Revelation. The only time you find this word dwell is in those two books. The word literally means to set up a tent. Now, I went tent, tent camping with uh, Travis and Lori several years back. And uh, it's a great, great story. I can tell you some other time. I won't take your time this morning. But as soon as I lay down in any tent, you know what I'm ready to do? Get out. Get out. Get out. <laughs> Like, I'm ready for breakfast. I'm ready to go home. I want to shower because I feel gross. I've been laying on the ground all night. Things have crawled on me. And I slept for an hour and a half, and that's it. I want to get out of the tent. But here's how I get through that experience in the tent. I tell myself, it's one night. I can do almost anything for one night. I can make it. And so I sleep on the ground, uncomfortable and dirty, with a root in my back, ready to go home. Why? Because it is Temporary. See, when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's speaking of Jesus taking up a temporary physical reference, uh, residence on earth. It's a New Testament way of pointing us back to the Old Testament tent, the tabernacle. And you know what happened in the tabernacle? God's glory dwelt inside that tent. And wherever it moved, that's where God's glory was with his people. But listen, it was still separate from his people. There was no intimacy because that glory stayed in that tent. And then people could see it, but it was from a distance. But see, Jesus became flesh and dwelt. He pitched his tent among us for a period of time so that the glory of God would be manifested intimately in the person and the flesh of Jesus Christ. And you know what we get the privilege of? Reading the word and beholding that glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now he's with us in the most intimate way possible. But do you know how the Bible ends in Revelation 21? I shared this last night. Listen, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the word means look, pay attention. Look, the dwelling place. Do you hear the language? The dwelling place of God is with man. Think about how Genesis started. God and man were together. What separated God and man? Sin. And man ran, did they not? Flee naked into the bushes. <laughs> ran away, ashamed and guilty. And what did God do? went after them because he wanted to be with his people. And he pursued them and he made a covering for them. He had to kill an animal and there was an animal that died and that, that carcass died and the, the, the covering was made from the skin of the animal to cover, literally cover the sins. You know what happens when Jesus' flesh is applied to you because of the cross? It covers your sin and your guilt and your nakedness. And your shame. And you don't have to run anymore because God has come to you to make a way to be with you. Let me finish. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You know what this means? It means this. God's committed to being with you. God is committed wholeheartedly and thoroughly to being with His people because from the very beginning to the very end, He pursued His people. He called out to Abram. He called out to Moses. He called out to Israel even when they were adulterous and worshiping other gods. And He came in the flesh to pay for our sins. Why? Why? So that we could be with Him. Write down Ephesians 2.7. Write it down. Ephesians 2.7. I want you to go to me. This is one of the most amazing parts of the whole Ephesians chapter 2 part where we're dead in our sins and God is rich in mercy. We miss this. I love verse 7. It says, if I'm not wrong, that he raised us up so that he could show us the goodness of his kindness and riches and glory toward us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. That's a really messed up paraphrase of that verse. But here's why he raised you up so you could be with him for all eternity. Not as his trophy, his glory is his trophy, and he's going to show you his glory for all eternity, and it's going to make everything that hurt and was sad and you mourned over in the past in this life, it's going to make it disappear. It's going to be gone. It will be no more. See the Bible. I had a guy tell me last Saturday. He said, "And yeah, the Bible's a book of rules to follow." I shook my head and I said, "I'm sorry. I disagree." I said, it gives us guidelines for life. I said, but you can't follow enough rules to get to God. You can't make enough A's and pass enough tests to get to God. The Bible is a love story of a righteous God who went after a rebellious people when they continued to run so he could say, I love you, I love you, I love you. How does it feel to be loved? Last night, I don't know why this was on on Christmas Eve, but we turned on the TV when we went home last night for a few minutes and they were sharing the story of the 1983 NC State National Championship run. I see some Wolfpack fans in here. I know know you're in here. I still love you. It's all right. And at the 10-year reunion, when they brought Jimmy V in, Reynolds Coliseum went wild, went crazy. And Jimmy V's coming into that place And these players are hugging him, and he's whispering something in their ear, and they whisper something And he goes right down the line, and the last guy was Thurl Bailey. He's two of me. If I stand on my head, I think I'd be as tall as Thurl Bailey. And if I'm not wrong, there's a picture of them putting Jimmy V on this chair. And Thurl Bailey reaches out and grabs the neck of Jimmy V, and he hugs him. Body just eat up with cancer. And he whispered something in his ear. And in that documentary, you know what they talked about? Thurl said this. Thurl said, you know what he said to me? He said, I love you. And Thurl said back, I love you too, coach. And there was a bond that cannot be touched in this lifetime. Because of what? Love. Love. Do you know what Jimmy V did for those guys? I watched that whole documentary in between diaper changes and screams and, you know, He inspired those guys because he loved them. He truly loved them. And you could watch the joy in their faces as they sat around the table and they talked about what V meant to their lives. And they knew this man loved me. I want you to think about Christ for a second. Jesus loves you with a love that can't compare to any love on this earth. Not even a mother's love for their child. Jesus loves you. How do you know? Because he became flesh. He became one of us. So that he could die for us. So that we could be with him. That's the greatest story that the world has ever heard. Do you know what conquers all? Love. The love of God in Christ for people that don't deserve it. That should never get old. We should never lose sight of that. This Christmas, when you go to bed tonight, you ought to lay here and think, the Word became flesh for me. For me. There's one more part I want to cover before I finish. It says, He was the glory... As the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. There's a lot we could talk about in this part, but I want to bring out one thing for you this morning. John tells us Jesus is full of grace, and he is full of truth. You know what that means? There is an overabundance of grace, and there is an overabundance of truth, and that's good. Why? Because I need all the grace I can get. How about you? And if Jesus wasn't full of truth, let's say Jesus was just three-quarters truth or 87% truth or 99.9% truth. If he wasn't fully truth, you know what your eternity would be based on? At least partly a lie. In order for your eternity to really be secure in Christ, he has to be full of truth. And that's what it says he is. But there's something else. When these words, grace and truth, are used together in tandem, in combination, it points back to two other words in the Old Testament that got put together. The steadfast love of God and the truth of God. Some translations say loving kindness. Loving kindness and truth are words that describe how God covenanted with Israel. It was His covenant faithfulness to His people Israel. Even when they ran, He pursued them and went after them and made a covenant with Israel. Them. Now listen to this. When God made a covenant, it was always the superior, God. God always went to the inferior and established the covenant with the inferior for the inferior's good and for God's glory. It was never the other way around with God. Now man could make covenants, but when God made a covenant, God always went to the lower party for the good of the lower party, for the glory of the superior party, and that is God. Always. And you know who the burden was on to meet the requirements of the covenant? It was on God. What is our salvation called in the New Testament? The new covenant in His blood. What does that mean? Here's what that means. God still came to us in that new covenant. And He sealed that new covenant in His blood. See, Old Testament covenants were ratified by blood. And this one was sealed in the blood of Christ. He had to come to us, die for us, shed his blood for us. It was sealed in his blood for us. And the burden uh, is on him to come through for you and I in eternity. There is nothing we can do, we bring nothing to it. Here's what happens we make no contribution to our salvation except to respond. That's it. It is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus my morality. It's not Jesus plus my position in the community. It's not Jesus plus my financial success. It's not Jesus plus my family. It's not Jesus plus anything in this world. It's Jesus plus nothing is salvation. That's what the Bible tells us. That's salvation in a nutshell. God as our superior came to us as the always inferior and established this covenant in his blood for our good and his glory. We just have to say yes. David Platt in his book, Follow Me, says that to millions of people around the world, this claim that God became a man is the most outlandish of all claims. To us, we accept it because we grow up receiving books in churches just like this that tell us God became a man. And the message gets lost on us. But to people that live around the world, they would say, that's the most absurd thing you could ever tell me that God became a man. And David Platt was in the Middle East with a group of Muslim men. They were at a restaurant. And the Muslim men asked David Platt, they said, Tell us, what do you believe about God? And if you've ever heard David Platt preach, he never, ever gets very far from the cross. And he starts pointing them to Jesus Christ and talking about how Jesus was God in the flesh. And one of them stopped him and said, Wait, 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 wait. That's not true. That can't be true. God would never do that because his character is too great. And David Platt looked at him and said, I agree. His character is too great. And that's precisely why I'm telling you he came to earth as a man. And the man's name was Rahel. Rahel looked at him and said, I don't understand. Platt said, let me ask you a question and tell you a story. He said, the story is about me and this girl. And he said, "I, I love this girl and I wanted this girl to marry me. So when it came time for me to go to this girl, he said, do you think I called up one of my best friends and said, will you please go for me and tell her how much I love her and ask her to marry me? And Raheel said, of course not. He said, you would never do that. He said, you have to go for yourself. He said, you have to go tell her that you love her yourself and ask her to marry you. And Platt said, exactly. Exactly. I had to be the one to go myself. And I had to tell her personally because in matters of love, one must go himself. And the Muslim man said, yes, that's correct. Platt said, that's exactly how God shows the greatness of his character toward us. He didn't send someone else. Instead, he came as himself, as one of us. Because in matters of love, one must go himself. And Raheel reclined in his chair and put his arms behind his head and started to smile. And Platt said, I couldn't help but think for the first time that his heart was opening to this idea. That God shows the greatness of his love. And His goodness to us, not by staying separate from us and saying, come to me. But by coming directly to us. This morning, more than anything else, my prayer and my hope and my study has been aimed at hoping and praying that God will give you a sense of His presence this morning. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I want you to grasp this truth. That God shows the greatness of His love. Not by staying distant from you, but by coming to you in Christ. So that all you have to do is call out and say, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm so far from you, God, in my sin. And I don't know you and I don't have a relationship with you. There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. Those are fine. Those are fine. I've used those many times. But you know what you find people doing? Calling out to God and saying, Save me. Save me. I'm drowning in my sin and I know it now. And I want to be yours. And I want you to call me out of deadness into life. And this Christmas morning, I hope that if there is someone in this place who has heard John 1.14 and said, I've just never thought of it like that. That God came to me to rescue me so I could be with Him. That's what Christmas is about. What better day Then for you, if you're not a follower of Christ, to call out. It's your belief that saves you. The words are just the expression of what's already happening here. Call out to him. Ask him to save you. If you say, I've done that and, and I love the Lord, then you worship him and glory in him as we close in this next song. Let's pray together.